pray that you would speak to us by your word. You'd help us to hear it and apply it to our lives and that you would encourage us with the truth that's here. Encourage us so much, O oh Lord, that we would seem to float out of this place, built up, lifted with the truth of your word. Speak to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, the only thing consistent about the internet is that it will create controversy. It won't take long for good people trying to do good things to find themselves embroiled in controversy, oftentimes by things that they didn't even think of when they said it. Sometimes by things they meant to say that were true that some people just didn't like. Happened with a woman, a Christian sister of ours, whom many of you don't know and may never meet, named Gay Clark. Happened to a Christian brother of ours, a pastor that many of you do know, named Jonathan Lehman. It happens all the time. It happened with Vice President Mike Pence. In an article about his wife, there was the mention that Vice President Pence lives by what's called the Billy Graham rule. Some of you will know that rule, this the idea that as a Christian man, you don't travel alone, you don't hang out alone, you don't eat alone with a woman unless she's your wife. And the aim there is to protect yourself from temptations and problems and struggles. It was interesting to see the, the internet kind of erupt into controversy about that. You know, there were some who wrote that effectively the Billy Graham rule while we understand it, it grows up out of some Christian convictions about holiness and the avoidance of sin, is nonetheless a, a restriction of women, doesn't take into account folks who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender, and causes all kinds of other problems. So there were the critics, both Christian and secular, who took that view. And there were others who applauded the rule. So, no, this is wise, this is good, in its place, it's for everybody's blessing. The most interesting reaction to me came from an atheist. Many of you will know, Todd Nehisi Coates, the journalist. Coates wrote what I thought was a helpful and insightful little post at The Atlantic. Thank you, Nick, for forwarding that to me. I want to read a section of it because I think it captures so wonderfully a Christian truth that Coates himself denies. See, some truth is just inescapable. Here's what he says. I've been with my spouse for almost 15 years. In those years, I've never been with anyone but the mother of my son. But that's not because I am an especially good and true person. In fact, I am wholly in possession of an unimaginably filthy and mongrel mind. But I'm also a dude who believes in guardrails, as a buddy of mine once put it. I don't believe in getting in the moment and then exercising willpower. I believe in avoiding the moment. I believe in being absolutely clear with myself about why I, I am having a second drink and why I'm not, why I'm going to a party and why I'm not. I believe that the battle is lost at happy hour, not at the hotel. Amen. Amen. I am not a quote-unquote good man, but I am prepared to be an honorable one. This is not just true of infidelity. It's true of virtually everything I've ever done in my life. I did not lose 70 pounds through strength of character, goodness, or willpower. My character and will angles towards cheesecake, amen? Fried <laughs> fry chicken <laughs> and beer in no particular order. I lost that weight by not fighting the battle on desire's terms, but fighting before desire can take effect. These are compacts I have made with myself and with my family. There are other compacts we make with our country and society. I tend to think those compacts work best when we do not flatter ourselves, when we are fully aware of the animal in us. Beloved, that's a better description of human depravity and sin than I've, I've read in any theological textbook. Coates, an atheist, understands something that too many Christians don't. The heart is deceptive and desperately wicked. 
You cannot trust it or understand it. And because Coates understands that, he understands the necessity of avoiding situations that lead to compromise and failure. And here's the thing, beloved. Ours is a culture comfortable with compromise and confident of control. Ours is a culture that thinks that the things Vice President Pence and Tottenham Coates and Billy Graham want to avoid are actually things to be pursued if you want to. How is this a world where infidelity, drunkenness, and the like are defined as fun and maybe just losing control and seen as a, a good time? And so Coates, along with Graham, become prudes, backwards. But I think Coates gets it right. There is in all of humanity, the Bible says, an unimaginably filthy animal. But as useful as Coates' article is in telling the truth about human nature, it doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't ask the next question. Where does that unimaginably filthy and mongrel mind come from? Who put the animal in us? And is there accountability for it? If Coates doesn't trust his willpower in the moment, why does he trust it at all? Animals tend to break out of cages when you least expect it. In our text this morning, we find out that what Coates thinks about himself is what the Bible says about us all. But the Bible goes on to to do something more. It gives us the solution to this problem. It's not a solution that comes from inside of us, but a solution that comes from outside of us. It's a solution that tells us where the unimaginably filthy and mongrel mind comes from and at the same time tells us the fix because it focuses on our most fundamental problem, our broken relationship with God. We need guardrails because we are rebels against God. If nothing changes, We will continue to be driven by that animal inside. But Christ has brought a loving and lasting change to all who will receive it. So we want this in one point. Our deepest need as human beings is to be reconciled to the God who made us. Our deepest need as human beings is to be reconciled to the God who made us. If you're taking notes, we're going to think about that by answering three questions. Number one, what are we like when we are alone? What are we like when we are alone? Number two, what has God done to solve our problem? What has God done to solve our problem? And number three, how must we now live? How must we now live? Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, And steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Our first question comes from that first verse, verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's the Bible's answer to the question, what are we alike when we are alone? Verses 21 and 23 is actually one long sentence in in, in our English Bibles and in the Greek uh, language. The main idea or action in this sentence is in verse 22. He has reconciled us. Reconciliation with God, therefore, is, again, the main idea of the paragraph. But we have to ask ourselves, why do we need to be reconciled with God? That's where Paul begins in verse 21. He gives us the why before he gives us the what. And according to verse 21, all of humanity, and notice he's addressing Christians, right? So all of humanity, even these Christians who are are now Christians, 
We need reconciliation with God because three things are true of every person apart from God. Number one, we're alienated from God. Alienated means entirely separated. It means to be estranged from someone. Paul begins by saying, you, referring to the Colossian Christians there, and to all of us, you were once, past tense, alienated if you're a Christian. He means you were separated from God, cut off from his presence, cut off from his love. You were alone in the world as it relates to a relationship with God. But not only that, number two, notice we were hostile in mind toward God. King James Version gives us a a different word choice there that brings out the meaning a little bit. We were enemies in our mind. Before we reconcile to God, our intellect and our thoughts, they're angry and antagonistic toward God. So we read in James chapter 4, verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's a simple litmus test to sort of take here. Am I friendlier with the world or with God? If you're not a Christian and you enjoy the world, I want you to understand God does not view that as neutral. He views you as having taken a side against him. You've declared yourself in that choice to be an enemy of God, not reconciled with God, but alienated from him and hostile toward him. This is our fundamental problem. This is at the root of our being. This is, this is the sin in which we were born. This is the misshaping of our soul that has taken place since the fall. We are hostile to God. We are enemies to him in our minds. Our thoughts are not for God, but against God. Alienated and hostile in mind. Paul writes again in Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. The mind that is set on the flesh, on the desires, to use the word that Tana Hissi Coates used. The the mind that is set on the desires of the sinful nature is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's where Coates has a problem. He recognizes his hostility, but he hasn't yet recognized that he cannot please God, the one he rejects and denies the existence of. Then he goes on to say, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Oh, this is a desperate problem. This is a serious problem, beloved. And so the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world and things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see what the Bible keeps telling us over and over again. If we are alienated from God, then we are hostile in our mind toward God. We do not know him. We cannot please him. We are in a desperate condition before him. He has regarded us as enemies. We are in a war. We cannot win. I know, beloved, we don't like to think of ourselves as hating God and being opposed to him. We'd rather think of ourselves as simply ignoring God (laughs) or or respecting God, but not really ready to follow him. I've heard many people say, as you talk to them about God's love in Jesus Christ and their need to follow Jesus, have you ever heard somebody say, I'm not ready for that yet? It sounds humble. It's actually rebellion. What does your readiness have to do with it? The God of the universe commands you, repent of your sin and come follow me. You obey that command. You don't talk about readiness. It's expression of enmity, of hostility toward God. That's how God views our hearts, as alienated and hostile, as enemies. That's how broken mankind's relationship is with God. There are no neutral sides. There's no Switzerland in this conflict. Notice the third thing. Being alienated from God and hostile toward God in our minds leads us naturally to doing evil deeds. Paul has in mind the the wicked, malicious, and mischievous ways of, of people. You may feel evil is too strong a word to describe your actions. Often we don't see how evil our lives are until we come to know God. Till we come over into the light and look back on that darkness, which really was darkness. But make no mistake about it. Any action taken by a person alienated and hostile toward God will eventually and undeniably issue forth at some point in the doing of evil deeds. You see, the problem is 
the problems in our hearts will express themselves in our actions. The crooked thinking in our minds will produce crooked living in our lives. We do what we are. And since we are sinners, we sin. Since we, apart from God, are evil at heart, then we do evil deeds. The fruit of our actions comes from the root of our nature. The problem is inside of us before it comes out of us. And that's what Jesus says when he talks about murder and slander and evil speech all coming from inside a man, from a man's heart. There's a progression in these three things. The, the heart affects the head, which motivates the hands. Feeling influences thinking, which leads to doing. This is why, beloved, when you hear a sermon like this or any sermon, and you hear the preacher say something that's really clearly from God's Word, and you're offended, you don't feel right about it, check your feelings. You're not actually thinking about it yet. You're feeling, and that's influencing your thinking. No, 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 beloved. That's the way the fallen man does life. So there's an order here. There's the feelings that give rise to the thinking that give rise to the doing. And this is why Coates is right in his article. If you fight your sinful nature at the level of behavior in the moment, at the opportunity for falling into sin, you weigh downstream. You might even win that battle, but the stuff that gave rise to it is still there unchecked. It'll show up again. You see the progression. In another letter written by Paul at the same time, Ephesians chapter 2, he summarizes this situation by saying, we were separated from Christ with no hope and without God in the world. That's that man alone. Christless, hopeless, and godless. We were, all of us, enemies of God. How do we think about this? How do we apply this to our lives? Well, I want to make an application to the culture, to the Christian, and to the folks who may be alienated and hostile. Number one, to the culture. This is why the idea of authenticity is so problematic. It's a dangerous idea. You sometimes hear people justifying and defending what are obviously evil, to use the language of the text here, evil doings, evil actions, by saying they want to be authentic. They want to be true to themselves. They won't keep it a hundred, right? <laughs> we think of authenticity as a kind of freedom, a kind of permissiveness. But authenticity, beloved, is a trap. It, it locks us into our alienated, hostile minds and ultimately our evil selves. What we don't realize is that we're freely expressing ourselves in the cage of sin. Like a, a, an angry, roaring lion prowling about inside the circus. He may think he's free. He may think he's running around. But he actually is inside the fences of the, of the circus. He hasn't become more than himself. He hasn't become different than himself. And to give himself over to himself, the sinner giving themselves over to their sin is giving themselves over to their destruction. And the world gives you a golf clap because you're keeping it real. And God is saying, that's real evil. That's real rebellion. Do not, in the name of authenticity, begin to define yourself in ways that displease God. It may be true that you have that desire, but it's the desire that must be sifted by the word of God. A thing's not right just because you feel it, beloved. Our feelings can be so misshapen in this fallen world. To the Christian. Beloved, we must remember our lives before Christ. We must remember that we too were once alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. And we want to remember that so that, A, we don't grow self-righteous and impatient with others. And we must do that so that, B, we don't lose hope in evangelism. And we must do that so that, C, 
we don't lose sight of how much God in Christ has done for us. It's nothing quite as strange as a self-righteous Christian who seems to have forgotten the darkness of their sin, who seems to live as though they were Melchizedek with no past, just dropped down out of heaven, righteous. (laughs) Now, beloved, Paul addresses this to us, to Christians. It's what we were. And and there's something else for us Christians to recognize. The, The old mind of hostility must be renewed. Isn't that what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says? When we become Christians, the old patterns of thinking and feeling and action do not instantaneously disappear. Not all of them. They they linger. Some of you will get this. They linger like the smell of chitlins. So we have to, yeah, see, came home, didn't it? So, so So we have to air out the house. We have to air out our hearts and minds. Or to use the New Testament language, we have to renew our minds so we no longer conform to the world. So let me ask you, Christian, are you busy and diligent about the renewal of your mind? Or are you complacent and confident that the old man is dead? Let us be about renewing our minds and daily killing the old man. Third application to the alienated and the hostile. I wonder if you're at least as honest as the atheist Ta-Nehisi Coates. I wonder if you honestly admit that you are in fact alienated from God, that you are hostile in mind toward him, or at least that's what God says about you in the Bible, and that you do evil deeds. See, you must admit these things before you can ever be reconciled to God. You must admit these things in order to get the help that only God can give. It does none of us any good to pretend that we are, if we're not yet Christians, that we are not at war with God. It's like a man whose wife is angry with her arms crossed and her neck crook looking at him sideways. Talking about, oh, we all right. No, y'all ain't. You ain't going to be all right till you admit to her what you did. And until you fix it. No, beloved, it only takes one to be offended for a relationship to be broken. And you may think that you are not offended by God, but God has been offended by your sin. And the question is, do you have enough integrity before God to admit it, to be honest about it, to confess it? Well, confession is critical. It is critical, beloved, to restoring and reconciling the relationship. The same is true of God. He requires that confession. So we must admit our wrong in heart, our wrong in head, and the wrong we've done with our hands. And we must admit that God is right to be angry with us. So, beloved, is that you? Are you that honest? If so... It's good news for you. Really good news for you. Which is why we asked the second question, what has God done to solve our problem? That's what we see in verse 22. Notice there the Apostle Paul goes on to say he has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. Now, to go back to the introduction, if our greatest problem is inside of us, a natural part of us, then can our solution come from us? If we lack willpower to get ourselves out of a temporary external situation, do we assume we have the internal power to remove an internal problem that's right there in our nature? That'd be a foolish assumption, wouldn't it? I love the way Al Mohler put it in that first Together for the Gospel conference. It was almost an aside, but it just, I think the Lord pressed it in every heart there. He says, most people think that their problems are external. And their solution is internal. But the gospel says our problem is internal and the solution is external. Verse 22 tells us the solution is Christ reconciling us. The he there refers to to Jesus Christ. He's the one that provides the remedy, right? He's the one that ends the warfare between sinners and God. There's no solution to this problem apart from Jesus. And so look back up in verses 19 and 20. 
where Paul writes there, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, it's Jesus who's God's plan A. And there is no plan B, beloved. There is no second plan. All of our hopes of reconciliation depend upon the Son of God. Everything else is sinking sand. So to reconcile means to restore a relationship of peace between two parties who were in conflict. The word Paul uses here for reconcile is the strongest possible word that he could use in the Greek language. It has a prefix that, that amplifies the meaning. As one scholar put it, quote, this reconciliation speaks of total and utter reconciliation, reconciliation without a doubt. The quarrel has been resolved so completely that no questions remain. Stephen, they missed their place to shout. Paul says to the Christians, you were enemies of God, but now you are reconciled to God without a doubt. Now you have peace with God without a question. This reconciliation is in his body by his death. The Bible is stressing that Jesus Christ was a real person. He had an actual body. He was not a phantom or a spirit. As Joanna read from Hebrews chapter 10, God prepared a body for him because God was not pleased with the sacrifices of the blood of bulls and goats. So he prepared a body for his son. And his son came into the world in our flesh, in our likeness, to do God's will in our place. To obey God where we had failed to obey God and to die at the hands of God to suffer the judgment we deserve. That's why he was incarnated. In order to take our place in our likeness. It was human flesh that had sinned against God and so it must be human flesh that satisfies God. It was human flesh that had broken God's commandments and deserved God's judgment. So it must be human flesh that suffers that judgment and obeys those commandments. And so the Son of God took upon himself our likeness, yet was without sin, and took our place in both righteousness and in justice and judgment in order to put together again sinners who had rebelled and a holy God who was angry. And this phrase, in his body by his death, beloved, that's no throwaway phrase. That's absolutely essential to true Christianity. If you don't believe this, you are not in any sense recognizable by the Bible a genuine Christian. That's why the Bible says in 1 John 4, 2 and 3, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Christ is no phantom, no ghost, no spirit being. He's fully God and fully man. And so Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Our Lord was given a body, so he might die for us, so he might represent us in righteousness and atonement. Death is the penalty of sin. And only living beings can pay that penalty. Christ took on a body just like ours to, to take our place in death. You see, beloved, it would either be us to pay the penalty or it would be a substitute. Jesus is our substitute. It was through his death on the cross that Jesus made peace between the holy God and sinful man. On the cross, God punished Christ in our place. On the cross, Jesus satisfied the demands of the law. God's anger with us was fully satisfied and turned away 
A fancy theological word is propitiated by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his son. And why did he do it this way? Why did God reconcile us this way? Why did he not, as in the case with trade unions, get representatives of the other party and sit down at a table and have somebody negotiate a peace? Why did he not sit down with humanity and say, hey, listen, I know there's some things you want and some things I want, and you know, let's see if we can bargain and negotiate. Why did he send his son to the cross? Well, verse 22 goes on to give us the answer, doesn't it? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see the idea there? In the first part of that sentence, he's telling us that Christ represents us. He's taking us into his body by his death. But in the second part of the verse, he's telling us that Christ represents us. He represents us in order to represent us holy and blameless and above reproach in God's sight. The text here has in mind the final day of judgment, that day when God will call all of humanity to account and will take his seat as the judge. And the record will be read and the, and the charges will be brought. And all those without an advocate, without an attorney arguing their case will be convicted of their sin. But the text is telling us that Christ in reconciling us has changed us. See the parallel of verse 21. In verse 21, we were alienated. But here now, we're holy. If alienated means we are separated from God and given ourselves to the world, holy means here that we are separated from, God, from the world and dedicated to God. We, we are holy instruments, just like the holy instruments in the temple and the tabernacle were, were set aside just for the use of God and the worship of him. So, is you, so are you, Christian. Holy, set apart unto God, devoted to him. And notice in, the, in verse 21, the text tells us that we were hostile in mind. And notice what happens in verse 22. We are holy and blameless. The word there is used of sacrifices that have no fault in them. They are without blemish. He's speaking here to our internal change. We've gone from being hostile in mind to God to being pure sacrifices, purely devoted to God through the work of Christ. And we were doing evil deeds, but now because God has reconciled us, notice we are what? Above reproach. Literally, the word means there is no charge that can be brought to you. What more can Christ do for us? So on the day of judgment, Christ will enter the courtroom of God and on the Christian's behalf, Christ says, I present to you a person who belongs wholly to you, who is blameless before you, and against whom there are no charges that can be brought. The entire case will be dismissed because of mistaken identity. The guy he was, he is no longer. The rebel he was, he is no longer. The sinner he was, he is no longer. The one who hated God now loves God. We're not even talking about the same person, God. So complete is the transformation that Christ makes. He says, I've taken this one who was dead in his trespasses and sins, who was futile in his darkened mind. I've given him a new heart and a new mind. I've made him clean and acceptable through my body, through my sacrifice, and I present him to you in my righteousness. There are no charges against him. And the gavel sounds. Bang. Justified. Forgiven. Accepted. Righteous. And God says, mine. That's why Jesus saves us the way he saves us, to represent us as we were meant to be. Holy and blameless and above reproach. This is why reconciliation with God cannot occur until there's repentance and faith. And this is why reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ is such a rich treasure to the true Christian. Oh, beloved, when's the last time you spent an hour meditating on how great the change has been in your life? Spend about 15 or 20 minutes remembering your sin, documenting them. 
But give the vast majority of the time, 45 minutes, to trying if you can, I challenge you, try if you can to count and specify the number of ways God has changed you through Jesus Christ. Because he's reconciled you to himself. Oh, this is so beautiful, beloved. We are put right religiously with God, morally with God, and legally with God. The alienation gives way to holiness. The hostile mind gives way to blamelessness. The evil deeds give way to being above reproach. So complete is God's work of salvation in our lives. Now, who would not want that? And if you're here this morning, and you draw back from that, and you balk at wanting that, beloved, in your head is the evidence of your hostility. That pulling away and pushing back and, and, and no, I'm not ready, or ah, that's disinteresting, that is the very hostility that verse 21 is describing. Most often our hostility appears as indifference. And if you are indifferent to God, you are in danger with God. He offers you so much more. Come get it. And Christian, let me just conclude this point with a couple of application questions. Again, do you daily delight in the treasure of reconciliation? Spend this week doing that in your quiet time. I'd encourage you to. Number two, how much does reconciliation with God define your relationship with God and define your identity. I, I, I mean, are you living the Christian life as if you're still trying to be reconciled with God? Or are you living it from the knowledge, from the fact that that reconciliation has already happened? That you and God are good. Number three, are you prone to think more of your past life of sin or your new life of holiness in Christ? Where does your heart tilt you? Where does your memory tilt you? Work to tilt yourself constantly, more often, toward this holiness that we have in Christ, who is our righteousness. Celebrate it. And very simply, number four, do you regard God as your friend? Or is God the one who's running all things, who kind of has forgiven you, maybe grudgingly, and messing up your life? He didn't give you what you wanted. It didn't happen the way you wanted it to happen. And, oh, God, I'm, I'm, not, sure we, I'm not sure we're friends, God. Uh, that thinking doesn't come from the Lord who blesses us with every spiritual gift in the heavenly places, who gives us everything we need for life and godliness, who the Bible says has given us his son and asked the question, how will he not along with him give us all good things? That's how God speaks to us about his friendship with us. Number five, really repeating number one, do you preach this transformation to yourself daily? Christians, forget the sweetest truths in the Bible become like a wind that blows away. Preach this to yourself daily. Which brings us to our final question, really, and in some ways begins to answer the final question. How must we now live? How must we now live? In a sense, that's what Paul addresses in verse 23. The final presentation of verse 22 comes later, at the end of the ages, when God ends time and begins eternity. When the day of judgment comes and, and heaven is brought and hell is open. But Paul, in the meantime, wants to remind us of our responsibility. Yes, God has reconciled us and God has saved us. He is the primary and the main actor, and all of our hope of salvation depends upon his gracious and omnipotent love. And yet, we have responsibility in this matter, too. So in verse 23, Paul comes to our responsibility. We might break it down into two, two things here. Number one, continue in the faith ourselves. The word if indicates a condition, doesn't it? Verses 21 and 22 are true of us if indeed 
Amen. In actuality, we continue in, notice, not faith, but in the faith. The faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Remember what's happening in Colossians. There are people there telling the Colossians that there's a, a more full way of life that they haven't entered into. Yes, you need Jesus, but for this fullness now, you've got to believe and do some other things. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. In the gospel, is Jesus, in Jesus Christ, is all the fullness of God. If you have Christ, you have all the fullness. The main thing is now to abide in Christ, to abide in the faith, continue in the faith, having received all that you need in order to be full in and with God. The kind of faith the Bible talks about is saving faith. It's not something done at one point in time and then forgotten. Saving faith begins when we repent and trust ourselves to Christ as God and Lord. But saving faith continues until Jesus comes or we die. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. The Apostle John is thinking about this, overcoming the world and its relationship to faith. Notice, notice what he says there. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you notice in all those verses they are present continuous tense? Believes, continues. Saving faith, yes, begins at repentance and trust in Christ initially, but it continues in the lifetime of the Christian. So, beloved, I want to be careful here, but I want to be clear. Saying, I once prayed a prayer is not saving faith. Instead, saying, I prayed a prayer and continue to believe and obey the Lord is saving faith. Saying, I went up front at church is not saving faith. Instead, saying, I first confess my faith in Christ by going up front after hearing the gospel, and I continue following him as Lord and Savior. That's saving faith. Saying, I was baptized. It's not, beloved, saving faith. But instead, saying, I confess my faith in baptism, in obedience to the Lord, and I continue to live as his disciple in faith. That, beloved, is saving faith. You see the difference? We don't want a temporary faith that cannot save. We want a continuing faith which takes us all the way to heaven. We want this faith, notice what the text says in verse 23, to be stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel we heard. Stable and steadfast come from the language of building and construction. We want a solid foundation. We want to build upon the rock that is Christ rather than the sand of anything else. We do not want to be shifty and unstable. We don't want to slip away from the hope or, or better, the confidence that we've received in the gospel to trust some other thing. It's always a temptation to think we need the gospel plus something else. The world tells us that relentlessly, and many Christian leaders suggest that to us. But the Bible wants us to know that everything we need for life and godliness, we have in Jesus Christ the Lord. So we are to continue in the faith. But number two, we are to continue spreading the faith to others. Notice how Paul goes on. He refers to the gospel, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. Paul uses a little exaggeration here. It does not mean that the gospel has reached every creature literally. It's his way of saying that in the known world of his day, in, in every major center where people gather, this message has gone out and is being proclaimed all around the known world. It was being preached widely. And Paul sees himself as a servant of this gospel. He was saved by this gospel, and now he feels obligated to serve this gospel. It was through the gospel that he was reconciled. 
And it's in the preaching of the gospel that he seeks to help others be reconciled. That's a wonderful attitude for a Christian to take. See, we're, we're those lepers who woke up and found food and clothing who should go back and tell the other lepers, here's where you find food and clothing. Some of you will know this old gospel song, I'm just a nobody, trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. That's what Paul is saying. He might have wrote the lyrics to that song, but you know. So by his example, Paul calls us to be people who seek the spreading of the gospel and the spreading of the faith in the entire world. And this is why, as as Matt did in the welcome and the introduction, uh, the bulk of our M's, our five M's, are taken up with this very thing. That's why we're dedicated to the message of the gospel. This is why we're dedicated to multiplying gospel-preaching churches all around the place. This is why Jeremy is up in Northeast right now preaching there, trying to assemble God's people and establish a gospel witness in that neighborhood. And this is why we support missionaries in the far-off places of the world to make this gospel known. This is the engine of the church. This is the glue of the church. And without this, beloved, honestly, you can find better social clubs. Honestly, you can find other things to do with Sunday morning. Whether it's sleep in or read your favorite book or, or go play basketball with the boys. And in your flesh, you'll enjoy it more. But we have been so transformed that we don't live by our flesh, but by the Spirit. And the things that delight us are the things of the gospel. And so getting up Sunday morning is no big deal. Gathering God's people is a real delight. Not going to the game or not playing basketball, that's no sacrifice. Christ is all. Christ is our treasure. He is our delight. And so the Bible here is telling us in so many words that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We heard that read in the call to worship. You can see that in the bullet in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 20. Because God has reconciled us to himself in Christ, we now have a new ministry, all of us, of reconciliation. We're entrusted, 2 Corinthians 5 says, with the message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors of Christ pleading with the world to be reconciled to God. And 2 Corinthians 5 says this this marvelous thing, that God makes his plea through us. But you need to sit with that for a while. When you and I share the gospel with others, the God of the universe is pleading with the world through us. What a wonderful way to be used by God. What an extraordinary thing. And here's the question. Does God ever stop making his plea with the world for their repentance and their salvation? If you answer that no, then since he pleads through us, we should be faithful and frequent in appealing to family and neighbors and co-workers and friends. Come be reconciled to God. We should do the work of reconciling sinners to Christ otherwise known as evangelism. So, let us live this way, continuing in the faith ourselves and continuing to spread the faith as widely as we can as we bear witness to Jesus Christ, the great reconciler of sinners in God. Let me end by saying a a final word to those who are not yet Christians. I want to ask your forgiveness. Please forgive us Christians if we keep pressing you and pleading with you to believe. It's because we want you to share in the same reconciliation with God that we have received. We we want your war with God, a war you cannot win, to come to a peaceful end instead of hell. It's also because we are attempting to obey Jesus by doing what the Bible says. He he made us ambassadors to to plead and to proclaim his message. We're not trying to annoy you as much as we're trying to honor God, as much as we're trying to see his greatest blessings come to you. So maybe if you're here and you're not yet a Christian and you've been annoyed by us Christians, maybe you have somebody in mind right now. (laughs) 
Maybe you can find it in yourself to forgive us and to give the gospel a fair hearing. To really consider the message. It's in your eternal best interest. Talk with the friend who brought you to church today. Talk with one of the pastors after the service. Or that person who came to mind who's always talking about Jesus that gets on your nerve, shock them tomorrow morning. Call them and say, hey, listen, would you come tell me about Jesus? It will make their day. And you will hear the word of life. But whatever you do, beloved, be reconciled to God by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ who actually died to pay the penalty of your sins and was resurrected from the grave three days later, that you might live forever with God in his love. Don't pass that out. That's the help from outside of you that fixes what's wrong inside of you. Let's pray together. Father, great and holy is your name, and matchless is your love. We marvel that you will not allow sins to go unpunished, and yet you have pledged to love and to redeem sinners. And you do this in your Son, preparing a body for him, sending him into the world, to fulfill the righteous requirements of your law and to die as a substitute for sinners. And to prove that you accepted his sacrifice, you raised him from the grave three days later and, and, and lifted him into glory where he sits at your right hand and where he rules until he puts everything under his feet and calls his church home. Lord, if there's one here this morning whose hope does not go beyond the doors of this building, would you give them the hope of the gospel, which will keep them and sustain them all the way into eternal life? If there's one this morning who has recognized that they are alienated from you and hostile to you, who've recognized that that's how you view them because they don't live for you, oh Lord, give them humility and honesty to admit their sin, to repent of it, to turn from it, and to call upon your name to save them and to make them your own. And for every Christian who was once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, grant that this day we might be carried with the knowledge that we have been reconciled to you finally and forever. And in Christ, we are holy and blameless and above reproach. There's no charge to ever come against us because of what Christ has done for us. We look forward to that day when the one who represented us on the cross and in the resurrection will represent us to you as your special, holy, chosen people. Hurry the day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.